Well, I thought, seeing as though it is Christmas time, the Christmas season, that we would have a reading from that most sacred of books, the Kiwi Bible. Just to try and hear the story in a, in a new way, you know, it just gets so familiar. So the Kiwi Bible, the Word of the Lord, uh, the, the heading is all about how Jesus got started. Okay, this is a little combination of Matthew and Luke, really, from the Kiwi Bible. A different way of getting pregnant. <laughs> the, <laughs> the birth of this bloke, Jesus, sort of happened like this. A woman called Mary got pregnant, but it happened a bit differently. Mary's fiancé, Joseph, had nothing to do with it. It was arranged, sort of, direct by God. Now, Joe wasn't so sure about all of this being right and proper. He was all set to send Mary off down the road when this angel character turned up in a dream one night when Joe was packing a few Z's. This angel, she said, no worries, Joe. God wants you to marry this woman. This baby bloke has been planted there direct by God. No worries. Matter of fact, you're going to call him Jesus and he's going to sort a few people out, okay? Joe woke up. He did marry Mary, but they didn't get up to anything until a little chap was born. <laughs> okay. Uh, meanwhile, down on the farm, nearby, out in the neighbouring paddocks, there was a crowd of farmhands on nighttime sheep minding duties. While they were half nodding off, an angel turned up. This made quite an impact. It got incredibly bright. This was clearly something God was involved in, and it scared the pants off them. The angel reassured them, no worries you fellas, I've got some absolutely stunning news for you. Today, down the road, this little nipper has been born, and he's no ordinary kid. He's going to make life totally rock, because you see, he's God's special bloke. How do you know this is for real? Well, check out these details. He'll be dressed in typical baby stuff, but he'll be parked in a feeding box rather than your standard bassinet. <laughs> Suddenly, this humongous bunch of angels turned up alongside the original lone angel. Every one of them was enthusiastic. Well, God's just fantastic, they said. And all around this place, we trust you'll have a happy Christmas, as it were. When the angels had taken off again, the farm workers had a yarn. How about we head down off to Bethlehem, and we can see for ourselves this special kid God's rep just told us about. Everyone agreed, so they took to their heels. Sure as, they found Mary and Joe and the wee bloke in the feeding box. They spread the news among their mates, and everyone was pretty well blown away by all accounts. As for Mary, the kid's mum, she was stoked by all of this, and she kept chewing it over for a good while afterwards. And the farmhands, well, they went back to work enthusiastically telling God how great they reckoned he was because of all the stuff they'd seen. What's more, it was word for word, frame by frame, exactly what they'd been told to expect. Well, that is the word of the Lord. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is a great Christmas present, I'm telling you, the Kiwi Bible. They've now got the Old Testament out as well, some of the Old Testament. Um, the next part, I won't read it to you, but the next part goes on about the three wise guys and all the rest of it. So that is fantastic, the Kiwi Bible. And it's, uh, the thing I like about that is it's actually a little bit fresh because, you know, at Christmas time you, you hear the story and it just gets so, um, I don't want to say old, but it's very familiar. And we, we talk about it every year and we, and we know it and it just gets a bit numb, doesn't it? Uh, and so it's nice to try and tell it a little bit differently, try and tell it in a new way. Uh, and, and, and the original Christmas story, of course, doesn't really look anything like the Christmas cards that we buy, the advent calendars that we open, the nativity scenes that we have in our houses. All of that's a very glossed up, 
um, PR-spun, airbrushed version of the Christmas story. Uh, and, and when you start peeling back the layers and, and trying to get your head and your heart around what that first Christmas was actually like, it's a lot more scandalous than we like to imagine. It, 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 certainly, if it happened today, it wouldn't be made into a children's story at all. It would be some weird late-night documentary. You know, it would, be like, it would be tabloid paper stuff, you know, beside the story about the woman who married an alien or something, you know, the, the woman who got pregnant by God and gave birth to the Savior. I mean, it just, it's, it's got an element of the bizarre about it, certainly in its own context. Um, it starts, you know, the story starts off with this woman, Mary. Uh, Andrew was talking about Mary, or her Hebrew name was Mariam, actually, that's, that's how she would have been known. And she was a country girl, probably only 15 or 16 years old. So we have this impression of Mary, the, you know, the saintly matriarchal figure who sort of presides over everything with this calm serenity. In reality, she was a scared and terrified teenager from a country town. Probably her dad was a farmer or a tradesman. They wouldn't have been very well off. And she's married or she's engaged to this guy, Joseph. And engagement was a bigger thing in those days than it is now. If you were engaged, that was as good as married. Uh, to, to break it off at that stage, it was like divorce. So engagement had more weight to it. Really, betrothal is, is more like what it was. So Mary and Joe are engaged. And then the, this angel called Gabriel turns up and speaks to Mary. And when you read uh, Luke chapter 1, gives us the account of what happened, it's all very matter-of-fact. You know, and this is one of the, the excruciating things about reading parts of the Bible. It just gives you the details, but it doesn't tell you how people felt or what was going through a mind. And you can, you can make a fair guess that Mary would have been terrified by this. An angel turns up and explains to her that she is going to get pregnant. She's going to have a baby. This baby is going to be a, a ruler over the house of Israel. Uh, he's going to be the son of David, the great king of Israel, greatest figure in Israel's whole history. He's going to be in that line, that sort of guy. And he is going to save people from their sins. And then, to make it even more interesting, the angel explains that Mary's not going to get pregnant in the usual way. Joseph's not going to have anything to do with it. But this is going to be through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and there'll be a, a, a conception that will be purely miraculous. And you have to wonder, that night when Mary lay in bed at night, you know, what, what's she thinking? Just try and wrap your heart around that. You know, what, what must this have been like for a teenage girl to hear that and try and figure this out, unpacking it? That night in bed, just what, is, what does this mean? How, I'm, what, I'm just going to find out that I'm, I'm pregnant? What's this baby? Who is he going to be? Somehow this is part of God's big story that he's doing with my country. Uh, what does all this mean? She would have been so confused and so lost. And what I find amazing is that it was really that night, I think, after the angel had appeared to Mary, and she's lying there in bed at night, the greatest miracle of the whole story had already happened. Before Bethlehem and before the manger, I think the most miraculous part of the Christmas story is the conception of Jesus. Because we think of Jesus as a man. Like it's one thing to think about God becoming a man, but what about God as an embryo? It's unbelievable, isn't it? That there was a moment in time when the God who breathed out the cosmos reduced himself down so staggeringly as to become a single fertilized egg in the body of a teenage girl. That just blows my mind. That, I mean, we, we've, we've, we've looked through this series this year in Joshua and we've met Yahweh, 
the great God who routs Israel's enemies and destroys nations and hurls down hailstones and stops the sun in the sky and parts the Jordan and brings the walls of Jericho down. And this is God. That's Yahweh, the great divine warrior of Israel. And it's that same God, not another God, not a different God, not the New Testament God. This is the same God who condescends himself so profoundly as to become this single fertilized egg that divides and redivides and redivides until a fetus takes shape. A human embryo, the most fragile, smallest form of human life that could possibly exist. And this is God. This is the same God of the Old Testament. And in that embryo, the fullness of deity dwells. Not just in Jesus, the man, but even before then. The, the creator God is being created. The God who sustains all things is being sustained by this teenager. The God who is utterly self-sufficient, who does not need anything or anyone outside of himself, the God for whom and through whom and from whom are all things, is slowly taking shape, being formed, fearfully and wonderfully made inside Mary's body. That I think is, 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 is possibly the most fragile part of the whole story of the Scriptures, and yet the most incredibly miraculous thing that God has ever, ever done. And then this pregnancy that Mary had, it didn't go particularly smoothly. Uh, she's got to deal with Joseph. So she's got to, I mean, imagine Mary explaining this to him, that she's pregnant. You know, your fiancé comes to you and tells you that she's, she's pregnant. An angel's told her. The baby's God's. You know, it all sounds a bit dubious, doesn't it? Uh, so dubious that Joseph clearly didn't believe her, and really his options were either to divorce her quietly or to hand her over to the authorities, in which case she may have been killed because that was the penalty for adultery, for unfaithfulness, which everyone would have assumed that Mary had been up to something. Uh, but Joseph just plans to, to quietly divorce Mary, um, believing that he can't go through with it because he doesn't think the baby's his. He knows the baby's not his. And so an angel appears to Joseph and explains that this is legitimate, that this baby is who Mary says he's going to be, that it was conceived the way that Mary said it was conceived. And so then Joseph's got to explain this to his parents. And he's got to explain this to his mates in the bar. You know, my fiance's pregnant and an angel told her this is the case and apparently it's God's baby. I mean, everybody must have just thought, you are off your rocker to even stick with this woman. And then Mary, as time goes past, Mary's bump must have got bigger and bigger, right? Now she's in a small rural town. You can imagine what happened. The rumor mill starts. Everybody's looking at her. They know Mary and Joseph aren't married yet, but here's Mary pregnant. I mean, this would have been utterly scandalous. I mean, today, a teenage girl getting pregnant is no big deal. We're so used to it. Back in those days, this would have been the talk of the town. Now, everywhere behind closed doors, Mary would have got stares. She would have got people shaking their head at her. They would have been gradually ostracized. This would have brought, in, an, in, a, in a culture in Palestine which was so based around honor and shame, this would have brought so much shame on them. They would have been shamed by their families. It would have been utterly embarrassing. It would have been the longest nine months of Mary's life. I'm sure pregnancy usually is, but even worse for Mary. I mean, this would have been hard. And then the due date gets closer, and they find out, even more bad news, there's a census being taken. For taxation purposes, the Romans took censuses, much like today, right? It's all about tax. You take a census so you figure out how many people you've got so you can tax, tax them. And the rules were, it'd be interesting if this happened today, but you have to go back to the town you were born in. 
to, to fill out the census form. So Mary and Joseph are faced with a situation where right around Mary's due date, they have to make an 85-kilometer trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. No cars, no planes, no air conditioning, probably on a donkey, if they were lucky. If, if not, just walking. But just imagine this. I mean, those of you that have had children in particular, just think about this. You're eight months pregnant. You make an 85-kilometer trip on the back of a donkey. The pain, the, 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 the heat, the unbearable experience that that must have been for the two of them over probably several days. It's hard to believe. And then they get to Bethlehem, and then the problems really start because Mary goes into labor, and Joseph's madly looking around for somewhere for them to stay. And you can imagine from his perspective, this is kind of the first big test of him as a fiancé, right? Looking after his soon-to-be wife. He's trying to provide. He's trying to protect. He's trying to be the man. His wife's going into labor. They're in a strange place away from home, and there is not a single room available in any accommodation set up because the, the population of the town has swelled because of the census. And so the best that they come up with eventually is this, really it was a cave, is what we're talking about. We hear the word manger, and we think, you know, nice, cute, cuddly little barn sort of scenario with fluffy animal toys dotted around the place and Jesus in a nice little pile of clean, sterilized hay. You know, it wouldn't have been anything like that. This was a cave. It was a cave dug into a cliff, probably underneath a house that was like an inn or a hotel, underneath where people would store their animals. It would be like a basement car park today, a smelly old car park, but far worse because this would have been loaded with animals. Not the odd donkey and the odd sheep, packed with animals because the, the place was full. It must have been. If every room was taken, downstairs was full as well. The cave was loaded with stinky, smelly animals. It would have reeked. When you think about it, I don't need to tell you all the smells that would have been going on. It would have been filthy and dirty and pitch black. There was no, I mean, we have this vision of Jesus being born in, a, in sort of a little boxy, mangery feeding trough thing. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. All we know is mud and rock and, and just filth. And in that environment, Mary gives birth to a little baby boy. And this story has kind of taken on a bit of new life for me this year, having gone through the process of having a baby, not me physically, but, you know, I was involved to some degree. <laughs> and as I think back, I mean, the, the day that, that our, our son was born, it was a little bit of drama. I mean, Anna had, had an emergency C-section, but it wasn't panic stations. And as soon as the decision was made to, to have the baby, we were surrounded by medical professionals immediately. The anaesthetist was there explaining what was going to happen. You're going to feel this at this point, then this will happen. Um, you know, there's orderlies taking the bed down. There's a charge nurse. There's your midwife turns up. I'm getting my scrubs on with the cool hat and the gown, and I mean, I'm looking good. Everybody's ready. Everybody knows what that is. It's like everybody just had a part to play, this perfectly coordinated orchestra. And even though it was, you know, tense and, 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 and difficult in a lot of ways, we just had this feeling that we are in the safest possible place we could be. It was clean, it was sterile, and everybody knew what they were doing. And I think about what would have happened if Anna had given birth in the conditions that Jesus was born in. I mean, it, it is just inhumane to think about, isn't it? You think about your children being born in that kind of, being born in a cave, surrounded by animals, no midwife, no epidural, 
No painkillers. Just, just the two of you right there. First baby ever. You've just made an 85-kilometer trip on foot or on donkey, and now you give birth. Unbelievable. And that's how Jesus enters the world. And you just step back. I do anyway. You just step back from the story, and don't you just ask, what kind of God is this? I mean, who does this? Who orchestrates this kind of scenario? What type of God are we actually dealing with here? It is like God organized the most humiliating, embarrassing circumstances for himself to be born into. You would at least assume that if God is going to degrade himself to the point of becoming a human being, which is bad enough, that he would be born with the dignity and the royalty and the pomp and ceremony that you would expect of a king of royalty. But instead, we get precisely the opposite. These inhumane, appalling circumstances for any baby to be born in. And then this baby is the fullness of deity. This baby is actually God in human form. What kind of God are we dealing with here? And Mary probably wondered that as she was lying there that night trying to get some sleep maybe, trying to figure out how to feed this Jesus and burp Jesus and all the things you would do with a baby. You know, I mean, he's a real baby. He wasn't floating a few inches off the ground. He was a real baby. And Mary would have been figuring all this out as well. I wonder if that night she recalled the words that the angel spoke to her when Gabriel appeared to her. One of the things he said, he quoted this ancient prophecy from Isaiah 7, and he said one of the titles when this baby is born, one of the titles that he will be given is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Just don't pass over that too quickly. God with us. That is not just something God did 2,000 years ago. That is who God is. Emmanuel fundamentally defines the nature of God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Not God above us, out of reach. Not God beyond us, whom we can't possibly understand, comprehend, relate to. Not God against us, who just wants to punish and judge. He is God with us. And he always has been. He didn't suddenly become God with us when Jesus was born. It has always been the nature of the triune God to move towards his people. His heart has always been drawn to be with those he created, not moving away from them. He was with Adam and Eve in the garden. He was with Abraham when he called him. He was with Israel, the tabernacle, the temple, the, the, the words he spoke to and through the prophets. All of these reflect God's heart to be with his people and to be among them. But I wonder if anybody in the history of Israel could ever have fathomed that God would go this far with Emmanuel to incarnate himself within our own humanity. I mean, when Israel had the temple and the presence of God contained in a room in a physical building, that blew their minds. Solomon says, man, the heavens, even the highest heavens can't contain you. How much less this temple I've built? What would have happened if you'd told Solomon, guess what's coming? God will become an embryo. God will be born as a human being. They just could not have taken it in. This 
is God. This is God with us. The incarnation, friends, reveals a God who does not stand far removed from us. He is not indifferent. He's not dispassionate. He's not unconcerned about the plight of humanity. He's entered into it. He has waded into the muck and the mire and the filth and the slime of our own human predicament. And he has fully enveloped himself in it. He didn't just appear as a man, a fully grown adult man one day, amazing enough as that would have been, but he became the smallest form of human life and was created just as we've been created. He entered into the heart and the fullness of everything that being human is. He wasn't just God wrapped up in skin. That's sometimes how we think about him. God in a bod, you know? They're kind of this, this, he's got a body, but inside it's just properly God, you know? So really he was just going through the motions of learning to walk. He already knew, but he was just pretending to be. No, 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 he was fully human. He learned he made mistakes. He had to figure things out. He developed as a child the way other, other children do, physically, emotionally, mentally, in every single way. He was utterly human with all of the earthiness and the grisliness that goes along with that. And this is God entered into the heart of it. Such was his proclivity to be God with us, to be God among us, to be a God who can identify with you and I. We don't serve a God who just knows what it is to be human out of an idea in his mind. No, he knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly who you are because he has been human. And here's an even more incredible truth. He is still human. Did Jesus give up his body when he went back to heaven? I don't believe he did. I think Jesus, even today, in heaven, is still fully God and fully human. You might find that a bit controversial. But Paul says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Not was, there is. You still have in heaven, representing you before God, a human being. I was talking with a friend the other day about this in Subway, the most ordinary of places, and we were just marveling at what it is that there is a human in the Trinity now. Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Son, He's still fully God, but He is still fully human. And so He meets us now, you and I, not only out of His divinity, but out of His humanity. He's, he wasn't just God with us back then. He's God with you now. He's with you. Whatever you're facing, whatever rubbish you've gone through this year, whatever burden is weighing you down when you came through those doors this morning, Jesus as the eternal son of the triune God, is with you. He's with you. He's with you right in the midst of it. And he meets you there in the middle of your own life and experience. And he speaks to you out of his nature of being God, and he speaks to you out of the nature of being fully human. And it's out of that experience, out of his own humanity and his own divinity, that he's able to come alongside you and encourage you and identify with you. And Hebrews says, empathize. With us. We don't have a high priest who can't relate, who doesn't care, who doesn't know. We have one who's been tempted in every way, he's developed in every way, and so he can deal tenderly with those of us that are weak and suffering and struggling. Because he didn't just come for the strong, and he didn't just come for the powerful. He was born in a cave. And if God was born in a cave, then power and privilege and position and rank and status mean nothing. All that's turned on its head in this utterly subversive act of God being born in a cave. He has come for the humble. He's come for the meek. He's come for the struggling. He's come for the broken. 
He's come for those who are just worn down and have arrived at the end of the year on an absolutely empty tank. He's come for us. He's God with us. Not back then, right now. He's God with us. He is still human. He is still God. He meets us and he ministers to us. And he fills us afresh with the Spirit to be able to take one more step and to be able to look forward with hope. Because here's the reality. God didn't just come down to earth to identify with us. He came down to lift us up. If all God did was come down so he could identify with us and know what it is to be human, that's nice, but it doesn't help us. It's like going and visiting someone in prison. It might cheer them up, but it doesn't get them out. But God didn't just enter into our humanity. He entered into it in order to restore it. He entered into the heart of the human experience and he drove an anchor there that is connected to God at the other end. And he holds both ends of that anchor. He's been completely human and he is completely God and he has created an unbreakable bond between humanity and divinity that can never, ever, ever be severed. That's how we get connected to God through Jesus because he's been and he is both. He's created the connection. And he is our representative before the Father, not just through his death on the cross. Sometimes we think Jesus just came to die. He was just born so he could die. He just had to be born so he could grow up and die on a cross. Think about it much more broadly. The whole life of Jesus is a sacrifice. The whole birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension is all a gift to you and I. It's all for our salvation. It's all for our benefit. Jesus didn't just die in your place. He was born in your place. He was born as your representative on your behalf. He lived on your behalf. He made your choices for you. He lived your life for you as a representative, just like a political representative speaks and acts on behalf of those he represents. Jesus, for those of us who choose it, represents us in his life, then in his death, then in his resurrection. When he rose, we rose because we're wrapped up in him now. His life is our life. We're identified with Him. When He ascended before the Father, we ascended with Him. All of that experience is ours now. Jesus' present fellowship with the, with the Father and the Spirit, we're wrapped up in that too. Jesus draws us into it. One of the oldest statements about the incarnation comes from Athanasius in the 4th century, and he said this very succinctly, that He, Jesus, became what we are in order that we might become what He is. Now, he's not saying that we become gods, all right? Sometimes people get that idea in their mind. This is not divinization. He's saying that we get drawn into the life and the love of Father, Son, and Spirit, that we are identified with Jesus. And because he was born, because he died, and because he rose again, everything that he has is now ours. Every blessing he has flows to you. Everything he's inherited from the Father, all the eternal life he's got, all the privilege of being the Son of God, we're identified with it. We share in it. His present communion with the Father is yours. You're identified with Him. And as He's relating to God, enjoying this incredible community right now in heaven, we are there. We are sharing in it. And that means when you feel 
right here on earth that your connection with God is severed and broken and destroyed and God's a million miles away, you need to remember that right now Jesus is representing you before the Father. He's interceding before the Father on your behalf. He's speaking words to God for you that you might not even be able to muster yourself because the Bible says we don't even know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus intercedes for us. He's right there. He's, in, he's keeping that bond strong even when it's weak in your heart. He's keeping you connected to God. He's fellowshipping with the Father. You're right there. It doesn't matter how you, how you feel. It doesn't matter if, you, if, if, if that's how you're feeling or if it's not. You might feel a million miles away, but He's still keeping you connected. He's still keeping you there. He's still bringing you to the very throne of God the Father and saying, here's, here's my son, here's my daughter. They're wrapped up in my identity now. Everything that I have is theirs. So would you hear their prayers and would you just pour out your love afresh on them? This is how it works now because we have Emmanuel, God with us. And even Jesus' future is ours. Everything he has is ours. When he comes again and reigns and rules over creation, guess what the scriptures say? We will be co-heirs. We will rule with him. We will reign with him. Everything Jesus has, is, does, has achieved, it's yours. Not in an arrogant, egotistical, give me a reward sense, but we just have received incredible blessing. And friends, if you're struggling, and if it's really, really tough, just soak yourself again in this reality. All that Jesus has is yours. He's come down to identify with you, but not to leave you there, to lift you up, to lift you out of your own brokenness, to give you hope so that you can see beyond your present circumstances into the life that Jesus has secured for you one day. That's the essence of faith. It's being able to see forward, past the present, past the present sufferings, to know that a better day is coming. And it's because of this God becoming an embryo deal that happened. It's because of his whole life. Did Mary and Joseph understand much of this? No. They had a piece of the puzzle. They had a very small little bit of it. They were just trying to figure it out. The Bible says Mary pondered all these things in her heart and she was just, just trying to figure things out. We now see much more of the story and we put the incarnation of Jesus becoming human, we put that in the context of God's great, big, redeeming story and we stand downstream from that a long way. But it has a profound, profound effect on any person who would give their life over to Jesus it's not just that you become a friend of his. It's not just that he is with you. It's that you are so utterly wrapped up and consumed and enveloped in him that you can say with Paul, I'm crucified with Christ and it's no longer me that lives now. It's Jesus living in me. That's not moralism. That's not you trying to be a better person. That's I'm so hidden with Christ. My life's his life. All that he has is yours. And friends, that should be a great encouragement, especially to those of you that are struggling this morning, to know that Jesus is with you to know that he's lifting you up. And he's right there before the Father now, speaking to God, the Father, on your behalf. And even enjoying the community with God that you might struggle to enjoy right now, Jesus is experiencing, and you, in some mystical sense we don't understand, are there as well, drawn into the life and the love of the triune God. Maybe what we need this Christmas is for God just to help us recapture the wonder of all this. Because God forbid it ever becomes mundane. God forbid anything ever gets in the way of us just falling on our knees and just saying, God, what have, you, what have you done for me? I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I never can, but thank you. And thank you is not even enough, but thank you anyway. Maybe that's our prayer, just that God gives us fresh glimpse into the unbelievable thing he has done.
in being with us then and being with us now. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.